You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young, and we are here with Scott Dunstan, the president of the Dunstan Group, and David Hale, ESPN College Football reporter. This is the season for college football, and we are getting close. So with college football heading into the playoff season, what do you do? Uh, you give them a hail. And we mean David Hale, of course, ESPN's guru of college football, especially around the ACC. Uh, we are lucky enough to have David based here in Charlotte, and he is going to join us today on the Brand Builders podcast. So what a treat. Thank you for being here, David. Hey, my pleasure. I don't know if I would call my appearance a treat, but I appreciate the kind words either way. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, David. We, we, we do really appreciate it. And now at this point, we know the four teams in the college football playoffs. We have Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Oklahoma. Just curious on your take about these four teams and was Georgia robbed? Um, you know, it sort of depends on how you want to look at it. I, I think it's the right four teams. To me, this is this is what it was supposed to be. These are This is what I would have done personally. But part of the problem I have with the way that the, the playoff system has been set up is, and, and I think most people – particularly at my network, we would argue this is a, a feature and not a bug of the system, but it's designed to create a bunch of debate. It is de designed to be sort of a nebulous rating system so that every week we kind of hear a little bit different story about like, oh, this team deserves to be in because of this thing, or that team deserves to be in because of this other metric over here. And it's never sort of the same thing twice. You know, so to me, I think the four most deserving teams got in by my version or by definition of deserving. But the way that, that the playoff committee defines deserving tends to be a, a very nebulous thing. And so if you're a Georgia fan, I think there's certainly a case that can be made for you. Well, I used to live in Georgia, and I don't think they have a case to make for them. So all my Georgia fans, enjoy your bowl game. There are no participation <laughs> trophies around. So moving on. <laughs> Before we uh, we jump into that, and I definitely want to get your take on who you think is going to win the whole entire thing, but I do want to learn a little bit about, about you, and this uh, entire podcast is about building a brand, and you've done an excellent job building a personal brand through ESPN. Uh, we know you spent time in Athens, Georgia, so they probably love that comment. Lexington, <laughs> Kentucky, Tallahassee, Florida, where I'm a fan of the Seminoles, so I got uh, very familiar with you when you re reported with them, and you did an excellent job. But tell us a little bit about your story. When did you find out, hey, I want to get into to, to being a sports journalist, and how has that road really taken you um, from, from, I guess, the thought process? Let us know that. Yeah, you know, it's something I think I always wanted to do since I was a kid. I just didn't think it was the most, like, possible of, of outcomes, you know? Like, I didn't know any sports, right? I didn't know any reporters, period. The idea of working at a newspaper, even like my – hometown, small town newspapers seemed like a ridiculous thing to want to do. You know, it's, to me, it was no different than saying like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. Like, it's just, it wasn't something that seemed reasonable. So I really didn't start thinking about it seriously until I'd actually graduated from undergrad and gone out and worked in the real world and doing accounting for a little while and realized that a, a cubicle was not for me. And uh, I can, I can mess around with an Excel spreadsheet as good as anybody, but I didn't want to do that as a full-time job. So um, I decided to go back to school and got a journalism degree, uh, master's degree, um, when I was, I want to say, 23 or 24. Um, so I'd kind of had a taste of the real world. And, and at that time, too, we're, we're talking about about 2003, 2004, 2005. Um, it was really sort of a change, changing landscape of journalism, too. I mean, I, I, was, 
I remember I was in school at Syracuse and I did a story for our student newspaper on this new website called the Facebook. And I didn't know what the hell it was. I had to like ask the, the kids on campus to figure out what in the heck it was. Um, but that was really sort of a, a defining point in, in where journalism and reporting and media was going. And so I kind of, I kind of put my, you know, put my foot into the water at a time, a very turbulent time. And in doing so, I think I've sort of, you know, there's certainly been a lot of downside to getting into journalism at this day and age, but the upside has been, I've learned a lot about marketing myself as a brand and, and creating a niche for yourself that is beyond just like, oh, I go cover sports. I write a good story. It shows up in the newspaper tomorrow. And that's that. I think, you know, when I grew up, you know, I cared about sports writing, so I knew who my favorite sports writers were. I don't think the average person even looks at the byline on a story most of the time. But now, I, you know, as a writer, as a journalist, I think you really have to create a, a brand for yourself. And so that's that's sort of the world that I came up in in journalism. That's really neat. And and I love how you mentioned um, social media. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how Twitter has changed because now anybody can be a journalist. Anybody can can honestly create an article um, but it takes a lot of hard work to build that brand. So tell me, how do you incorporate social media to build your personal brand and professional brand? And is that your favorite social media platform or is there one that you prefer? No, I mean, I, I use Twitter a lot um, and I find it to be the most useful for me, or at least the one that I, I probably spend the most time on. I, I am not a huge Facebook fan. Um, I've just not found the the upside to it in my own personal experience. I know a lot of people kind of feel differently. Uh, and certainly Twitter has its its downsides. And I was, I mean, I, I think I, my, I started my initial Twitter account in like 2008, maybe the end of 2008. So I was probably one of the earlier ones on it. And it has certainly changed a lot during the decade or so that I've had a Twitter account. And I've, I've, I had one when I was covering Georgia. I started a new one when I started covering the Phillies. And then I started covering, uh, when I started ESPN, I started a completely new one there. So I've kind of rebuilt Twitter brands three times now. Um, and it's, it's been interesting to see how that goes. You know, I think for me personally, um, it's largely been a positive. I think you get a lot of good instant feedback and interaction with your audience, which is something that I think particularly in the media, we don't do a good job of, of doing. We don't do a good job of listening to our readers and our audience and asking them what they want, and what they think about things. We have a tendency to think we already know. Uh, I don't think that that's usually the case or at least not always the case. And so, you know, Twitter for me has become a very good feedback mechanism. Uh, and then moreover, I mean, it's a good idea generator for me. You know, I, I, you can, the, the nice thing about Twitter is you can sort of be a lurker in, in some discussions and, and learn what other people are talking about without necessarily having to be a direct uh, uh, producer of that content. And so you kind of learn a little bit about what, what is interesting to people or what people are talking about, and then you can kind of fold that into your own ideas. So all of that's been good. And then, you know, look, there's obviously a downside to it too. You know, you are, you are signing up for criticism when you sign up for Twitter. And uh, there are days where that becomes a little too much, even for me, I've sort of steeled myself against it a good bit too. Um, and, and some of it, you know, I, I have had my share of, uh, Twitter debates with people who I think are being less than reasonable. 
Uh, and people will ask me, well, why do you even bother to get into it with people like that? And, and to me, I sort of view it as like my own little like Don Quixote tilting at windmills of like, you know what, uh, I'm going to fight a fight. So, so maybe everybody else sees it and realizes like, all right, I'm not going to be such a jerk on Twitter. or Maybe I won't be so unrealistic on Twitter. I don't know that that actually works, but I, I you know, I find that it, that it's something I feel it gets something off my chest sometimes too. So I don't know. Is it toxic sometimes maybe, but I also feel like I get a good bit out of it. And, you know, again, from a branding standpoint, I don't know that there's anything that has helped me kind of make people realize like who I am as, as a writer and a reporter and, and an individual more than, than what my Twitter feed has done. I'm curious, like from a management or, or ESPN perspective on that, how, how do they view the debates uh, that you <laughs> and some of your, you know, your co- cohorts uh, have on, on Twitter and such? Um, they don't love it, to be honest <laughs> with you. I think if I, uh, if I, if I just shut down my Twitter feed entirely, there would be a lot of people who would not be upset about that um, <laughs> within the ranks of my bosses. But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it it's, it's a delicate balance and I probably have not always been good at towing that line. Um, but it's, you know, one of those things that, you know, for, from a, a media standpoint, you know, I, I am a sports writer and so that's what I do, but I am very, very passionate about journalism as a whole. I think it's an, a critically important uh thing in this country and the media is pretty much constantly under attack from both sides uh or all sides and some of that is justified and some of it is not and i think part of the reason that it's so easy to attack the media is because people really don't understand the media or how our jobs work or what it is that that we're doing and so to me a little bit of what twitter has been and why i get into some of those debates and arguments is because I genuinely want to inform people about how it is that I do my job or how it is that I make decisions. Or if I say something you don't agree with, at least let me explain why I made that statement. Uh, And if I am wrong, I'm more than happy to admit it too. Um, And, and, you know, I don't know, is that a drop of water in the ocean? Probably. But to me, I think, you know, if you start to peel back that, that curtain a little bit and let people see, you know, how the job is being done, you know, to me, I think there's a there's an upside to that. There's a value in that that is bigger than just building my brand. I think it's about explaining to people that what we do, not necessarily what I do, but what journalists do in general is, is fairly important and a, a job that we all take very seriously. And and tell me a little bit about, um, you know, speed to market. We in Charlotte have interviewed a, a couple of different journalists, and I think that's the the biggest challenge is you want to be the fastest, but you also want to be correct. Um, and so there's a fine line as to what you're reporting, um, where you're getting your sources, et cetera. How has that changed your job, uh, number one? And number two, what is a story or a topic that you released the news and you just couldn't believe that it blew up? Or, or maybe one of the biggest stories that you got to, to report on um, and, and how that kind of changed your career? Yeah, you know, it's a it's an interesting thing. And I think part of it, you know, you have to work for the right people because there are certainly some news outlets out there that being first is the only thing that's important. And, you know, I, I, I scratch my head when I'm at like a press conference and people can't wait to be the first to tweet out a, a quote from a coach or something like that. And it's like we all heard it. You know, you're getting your tweet out five seconds before somebody else. That's not first to me. That's just you typed a little bit faster. 
Um, gotcha. You know, to me, I, I, yeah, I, I have really sort of shifted my idea of what breaking news is now to breaking news to me is not necessarily being the first to get information out, but it is getting out a story that n- no one else can just follow up immediately with the same story. You know, if I write something that is newsworthy and it gets out there, you can't just read what I wrote and then go talk to the same people and write that story 20 minutes later. It is a thing that requires actual information and research and reporting. Um, you know, it's not a thing that gets turned around quickly. It's not a thing that a press release is coming out 10 minutes after my report saying exactly what I just said. It is it is something that is unique and can't be immediately copied by somebody else. That to me is what breaking news is now. Um, and that's really what I try to chase more than anything. You know, I'm not I'm not worried about being the first, you know, certainly I'd love to be the one who breaks the story when a coach is fired or coach is hired or something like that. And, and I, you know, talk to sources routinely and I try to do those things, but, but it is not nearly the priority for me as it was when I started in this business, because I think that the whole landscape has changed. And so, you know, to me, I'd rather write a story that has some genuine insight behind it that, you know, one of the things, the metrics that we talk about in, in media is your your clicks versus your engagement. And so, you know, I think you can write a really fast, easy breaking news story and get a lot of clicks, but what kind of engagement are you getting? Are people reading the story? Are they consuming it? Are they talking about it later? You know, how long are they spending on your site? Are they going from that story to read other stories on your site? These are all, you know, things that I don't think I think about necessarily when I'm writing the story, but to me, that's the big difference between what breaking news used to be and what breaking news is now today is that my my goal is really much more engagement versus, you know, just how many eyes can I get on this? That's a great point. And I feel a lot of people in this Instagram likes world or how many followers you have, it's, it's everybody's after the clicks, right? But it's like, what content and what are you really bringing to the table? So that's very refreshing to hear from a journalist. Now let's get into the, the bread and butter here. Um, you follow college football. I love college football. We're in the South. Everybody loves college football. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the Carolinas. Um, I want to know your thoughts on on South Carolina, on uh, on UNC um, as well, and, and as App State as well. So we have those three, and then we'll get into Clemson. But talk a little bit about App State and their bowl game. They've uh, continued to grow. And then let's talk a little bit about South Carolina and their bowl game as well when they come here to the Belk Bowl. Yeah, so with, with App State, it's really interesting because I think this is – it's been really impressive how quickly that program has grown since they moved up to the division one FBS level. Uh, But sort of the product of that success is that um, people pay attention. And so Scott Satterfield, who has sort of been the architect behind this growth for app state just got hired away by Louisville to coach uh, coach there. So it is sort of a a point in a transition point an inflection point for app state. Um, Everything that I've heard suggests they want to hire someone with close app state ties you know, I think they know what their culture is there, the, the brand that they want to have at App State, uh, and they want to hire somebody that will continue what has been built. Um, but it is, you know, it's sort of particularly for a program like like App that is is sort of playing at a new level now that, that Scott Satterfield got them to. There's always the question of, all right, we got here. Now, how do we get to that next step and who is going to lead us in that? So it's an interesting, interesting time for them. Um you know, North Carolina is an interesting one, too, because they just went out and hired 67-year-old Mac Brown, who hasn't coached in five years, to head their program. And uh, I worked with Mac at ESPN. I think he's a, a wonderful guy. Um, 
I, I'm sure he will do very well with boosters and, and helping generate some revenue to the program. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting question of how, you know, a guy who's been out of football and is at that age, how does he sit in a living room with 18 year old recruits and sell them on coming to a place like North Carolina? That's an interesting question to me. And it's, it's interesting too, because Kansas has done sort of the same thing with less miles. I mean, it's, this is something sort of unique in, in recent college football memory of, uh, places hiring coaches who have been out of the game for a little while. Uh, Arizona State did it with with Herm Edwards last year. Uh, guys that are older coaches, guys that have had success, but it's been a while. And saying, "Hey, here, be the CEO of this program now. Build this brand and get get recruits." And um, I think it'll be interesting to see how these experiments go. Um, South Carolina is a whole different ball game because the SEC is a whole different ball game. Uh, I actually really like what Will Muschamp's been building there. I think it's sort of simmered under the radar a little bit because Georgia has been so good within their own division and obviously Alabama rules the roost in the, in the SEC. But to me, this was a, a, you know, last year, South Carolina team, I thought overachieved a little bit. Um, I thought this was actually a better team this year overall, although they didn't win as many games, but maybe the Clemson game, you saw them put on a performance that I don't think that they were capable of the last couple of years. So I don't, I, you know, South Carolina fans uh, tend to be a little bit more patient bunch in general. So credit to them. I think some of that patience is going to start to, to pay off uh, next year and, and in the years beyond. Cause I really think that, that there's a foundation being put together by Will Muschamp there that, that was kind of a, a little bit adrift in the latter years under Steve Spurrier. Yeah. As much as I hate to say it right now, I'm an, uh, I'm an irate pirate and uh, really curious about your take on ECU right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, good start. Or, 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 great start. Hey, actually, do you yeah. even know who they are? <laughs> so East Carolina's in Greenville, uh, North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, I, look, I, it's uh, to me, it's a shame to see that program down because ECU is one of the most fun of the what's considered the Group of Five, the 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 conferences that are not, you know, the big name conferences. ECU has a huge fan base, a great stadium environment. Um, and has pretty consistently been competitive uh, with anybody. And so I hate seeing them down. And it, particularly, I was a huge Ruffin McNeil fan. He, you know, when, when Ruffin and Lincoln Riley were there, that, that was a great coaching staff. And then, you know, Lincoln moves on to Oklahoma. I thought at the time that that, that was going to be a big blow to ECU. And then when they fired uh, Ruffin McNeil, that seemed really – uh, not like the best ideas to me at the same time. And I, I know Scotty Montgomery a little bit from his time at Duke too. And I thought he was a good coach who was probably not ready for that job. And, and people, you know, one of the things that, that in coaching circles, there are coaches who are really good X's and O's coaches are really good at recruiting. Uh, but the idea of being in charge of a program, the CEO, the guy who is making the decisions, on everything the buck stops here guy is a much different job than just being a coach um and not everybody is ready for that and some people never are ready for that uh so that to me is a little bit of what happened i think at ecu is that you know ruffin mcneil was a a head coach not just a coach and scotty montgomery i think has a chance to be a good head coach one day but clearly the timing and uh the the situation of ecu was not right for him I, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they 
start building back and, and how long that takes because it's it's too good of an environment there for that program to be down for that long. It's sad. The last game I watched, I mean, it's like 30 fans there. <laughs> I mean, people are just giving up right now, and it seems like the program's losing money, and they're talking about adding $67 to everyone's tuition to build it back up and put some funds back into the athletic programs. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Well, actually, so you mentioned Coach Ruff, Lincoln Riley. Um, I'm a little biased on this next question as we go into the uh, the playoff. I have a friend that's a GA, Damon Magazoo, who actually played under Coach Ruff at ECU. So we'll combine those together and got the chance to go out to Oklahoma. So I'm Boomer Sooner all day in the playoff. But what I want to hear from you is who's going to win and what's your take on these four teams? And give us kind of your, uh, your semifinal lookout and then what that national championship will look like as well. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at the Vegas spreads, you would think both of these games are going to be blowouts for Alabama and Clemson. I don't think that any team gets to this point uh, without having ample talent to be competitive. Um, I do look at the, 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 the Cotton Bowl matchup between Clemson and Notre Dame, I think really does favor Clemson in a lot of respects. Not that Clemson doesn't have some weaknesses, but those strengths of Notre Dame really play into the strengths of, of Clemson. You know, Notre Dame wants to run some power football. Uh, they like the short passing game. They're not a team that really tries to beat you vertically down the field offensively. All of those things play right into Clemson's hands. So I, I do think Clemson wins the Cotton Bowl pretty easily. The other game, you know, people have kind of written off Oklahoma because of the defense has been suspect this year. I think a couple of things play into that. Number one, they changed coordinators going to Ruffin McNeil uh, midseason. And, and that's a really hard transition to make on the fly because you're just you're not fixing scheme. You're just trying to fix some technical things from week to week as you're getting ready for the next team on your schedule. Now, between the end of the season and a bowl game, you've got a couple of weeks of practices where you can go back and start at the beginning and rebuild some of those faults in the foundation that weren't there to begin with. So it wouldn't surprise me if Ruffin McNeil gets a lot of things fixed during the month of December before the Orange Bowl that, you know, it's a it's a different looking defense when we see them out on the field again the next time. And the other thing is for all of the talk about how bad the defense was, the offense was really, really good. And Kyler Murray is exactly the type of quarterback who has had success against Alabama's defense in the past. I mean, it's. He's sort of that Johnny Manziel type where he can beat you downfield. He can beat you with his legs. You, you pretty much have to take one of your safeties or linebackers and spy him at all times. It disrupts what Alabama likes to do defensively. So to me, I, you know, people are talking about Alabama being this great, historically good team that's going to dominate Oklahoma. I don't see it. I think Oklahoma matches up much better in this game than people are giving them credit for. Now, having said all of that, if, if Tua Tagovailoa is healthy – Alabama can score some points too. So it wouldn't surprise me if that game ends up being something like a 45, 40 game. I, I, I'm not so bold as to say Oklahoma is going to win it. I'd still probably pick Alabama, but I think it's a more interesting matchup than, than people are, are giving it credit for. And then the title game, if it does turn out to be Alabama and Clemson be the fourth straight year that those two played each other in the playoff, they know each other really, really well at this point. I think Clemson is, is, that would be my pick. I think Clemson's going to win. I wish I had a really good reason for saying it. Um, but I, I think I hope I kind of hope it ends up being those two, because I think they've been the best two teams in college football all year. And I want to see the two best teams go head to head again for the fourth time in a row. 
You're getting me excited right now, David. So this is awesome, man. We really appreciate you uh, you joining us now. Before we let you go, tell us again uh, how we can follow you on Twitter and uh, what's the best way to reach you. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. My handle is uh, David Hale Joint, like a Spike Lee joint, but, but David Hale. Uh, and uh, if you check out ESPN.com, I, I cover all the college football. So you'll you'll see my stuff on the college football main page. And we're turning the, the page over to, to basketball now. I'm sure I'll be writing a whole bunch about Zion Williamson and Duke's phenomenal freshman as the basketball season gets going too. So uh, hopefully folks will come and check it out and hopefully we'll have some decent content for them to see. Awesome, man. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Brand Butters Podcast. It was a pleasure. We look forward to all these bowl games and especially the playoff, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Hey, right back at you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.